Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Today we're reading from Beautiful Joe by Margaret Marshall Saunders. Chapter 16, Dingley Farm. My dear niece, and a stout middle-aged woman with a red lively face threw both her arms around Miss Laura. How glad I am to see you, and this is the dog. Good Joe, I have a bone waiting for you. Here's Uncle John. A tall, good-looking man stepped up and put out a big hand, in which my mistress's little fingers were quite swallowed up. "'I'm glad to see you, Laura. "'Well, Joe, how'd you do, old boy? "'I've heard about you.' "'It made me feel very welcome to have them both notice me, "'and I was so glad to be out of the train "'that I frisked for joy around their feet "'as we went to the wagon. "'It was a big double one, "'with an awning over it for shelter from the sun's rays, "'and the horses were drawn up in the shade of a spreading tree. "'They were two powerful black horses, "'and, as they had no blinders on, "'they could see us coming.' Their faces lighted up, and they moved their ears and pawed the ground, and whinnied when Mr. Wood went up to them. They tried to rub their heads against his, and I saw plainly that they loved him. "'Steady there, Cleve and Pacer,' he said. "'Now, back, back up.' By this time, Mrs. Wood, Miss Laura, and I were in the wagon. Then Mr. Wood jumped in, took up the reins, and off we went. How the two black horses did spin along!' I sat on the seat beside Mr. Wood and smelled the delicious air with its lovely smell of flowers and grass. How glad I was to be in the country. What long races I should have in the green fields. I wished I had another dog to run with me and wondered very much whether Mr. Wood kept one. I knew I should soon find out, for whenever Miss Laura went to a place, she wanted to know what animals were there about. We drove a little more than a mile along a country road where there were occasionally houses. Miss Laura answered questions about her family and asked questions about Mr. Harry, who was away at college and hadn't got home. I don't think I have ever said before that Mr. Harry was Mrs. Wood's son. She was a widow with one son when she married Mr. Wood, so that Mr. Harry, though the Morrises called him cousin, was not really their cousin. I was very glad to hear them say that he was soon coming back, for I had not forgotten that but for him I never should have found my pleasant home or known Miss Laura. By and by I heard Miss Laura say, "'Uncle John, have you a dog?' Oh, "'Yes, Laura,' he said. "'I have one today, but I shan't have one tomorrow.' "'Oh, Uncle, what do you mean?' she asked. "'Well, Laura,' he replied, "'you know animals are pretty much like people. "'There are some good ones and some bad ones. "'Now this dog is a snarling, cross-grained, cantankerous beast, "'and when I heard Joe was coming, I said, "'Now we'll have a good dog about the place, "'and here's an end to the bad one.' So I tied Bruno up, and tomorrow I shall shoot him. Something's got to be done, or he'll be biting someone. Uncle, said Miss Laura, people don't always die when they are bitten by dogs, do they? No, certainly not, replied Mr. Wood. In my humble opinion, there's a great lot of nonsense talked about the poison of a dog's bite, and people dying of hydrophobia. Ever since I was born, I've had dogs snap at me and stick their teeth in my flesh, and I've never had a symptom of hydrophobia. And never intend to have. I believe half the people that are bitten by dogs frighten themselves into thinking they are fatally poisoned. 
I was reading the other day about a policeman in a big city in England that has to catch stray dogs, and dogs supposed to be mad, and they get bitten over and over again and never think anything about it. But let a lady or gentleman walking along the street have a dog bite, then they worry themselves until their blood is in a fever, and they have to hurry across France to get Pasteur to cure them. They imagine they've got hydrophobia, and they have it because they think they have it. I believe if I fixed my attention on the right thumb of mine and thought I had a sore there and picked at it and worried it, in a short time a sore would come and I'd be off to the doctor to have it cured. At the same time, dogs have no business to bite and I don't recommend anyone to get bitten. But uncle, said Miss Laura, isn't there such a thing as hydrophobia? Oh yes, I dare say there is. I believe that a careful examination of the records of deaths reported in Boston from hydrophobia in the space of 32 years shows that two people actually died from it. Dogs are like all other animals. They're liable to sickness, and they've got to be watched. I think my horses would go mad if I starved them, or overfed them, or overworked them, or let them stand in laziness, or kept them dirty, or didn't give them water enough. They'd get some disease anyway. If a person owns an animal, let him take care of it, and it's all right. If it shows signs of sickness, shut it up and watch it. If the sickness is incurable, kill it. Here's a sure way to prevent hydrophobia. Kill off all ownerless and vicious dogs. If you can't do that, have plenty of water where they can get at it. A dog that has all the water he wants will never go mad. This dog of mine has not a single thing the matter with him but pure ugliness. Yet, if I let him loose, and he ran through the village with his tongue out, I'll warrant you there'd be a cry of mad dog. However, I'm going to kill him. I've no use for a bad dog. Have plenty of animals, I say, and treat them kindly. But if there is a vicious one among them, put it out of the way, for it is a constant danger to man and beast. It's queer how unreasonable some people are about their dogs. They'll keep them, no matter how they worry other people and even when they're snatching the bread out of their neighbors' mouths. But I say it is not the fault of the four-legged dog. A human dog is the worst of all. There's a band of sheep-killing dogs here in Riversdale that their owners can't or won't keep out of mischief. Meek-looking fellows some of them are. The owners go to bed at night, and the dogs pretend to go too. But when the house is quiet and the family asleep, off goes Rover or Fido to worry poor defenseless creatures that can't defend themselves. Their taste for sheep's blood is like the taste for liquor in men, and the dogs will travel as far to get their fun as the men will travel for theirs. They've got it in them, and you can't get it out. We had come to a turn in the road where the ground sloped gently upward. We turned in at the gate and drove between rows of trees to a long, low red house with a veranda all around it. There was a wide lawn in front, and away on our right were the farm buildings. They, too, were painted red, and there were some trees by them that Mr. Wood called his windbreak, because they kept the snow from drifting in the wintertime. I thought it was a beautiful place. Miss Laura had been here before, but not for some years, so she, too, was looking about quite eagerly. "'Welcome to Dingley Farm, Joe,' said Mrs. Wood, with her jolly laugh, as she watched me jump from the carriage to the ground. "'Come in, and I'll introduce you to Pussy. "'Aunt Hattie, why is the farm called Dingley Farm?' asked Miss Laura as we went in the house. It ought to be Wood Farm. Dingley is made out of dingle, Laura. You know the pretty hollow back of this pasture? It is what they call a dingle. So this farm was called Dingle Farm, till people round about got to say Dingley instead. I suppose they found it easier. Why, here's Lolo coming to see Joe. 
Walking along that wide hall that ran through the house was a large tortoise shell cat. She had a prettily marked face, and she was waving her large tail like a flag and meowing kindly to greet her mistress. But when she saw me, what a face she made. She flew on the hall table and putting up her back till it almost lifted her feet from the ground, began to spit at me and bristle with rage. Poor Lolo, said Mrs. Wood, going up to her. Joe is a good dog and not like Bruno. He won't hurt you. I wagged myself about a little and looked kindly at her, but she kept on saying bad words to me. It was weeks before I made friends with that cat. She was a young thing and had known only one dog, and he was a bad one, so she supposed all dogs were like him. There were several rooms opening off the hall, and one of them was the dining room where they had tea. I lay on a rug outside the door and watched them. There was a small table spread with a white cloth, and it had pretty dishes and glassware on it, and a good many different kinds of things to eat. A little French girl called Adele kept coming and going from the kitchen to give them hot cakes and fried eggs and hot coffee. As soon as they finished their tea, Mrs. Wood gave me one of the best meals I ever had in my life. Chapter 17. Mr. Wood and His Horses The morning after we arrived in Riverdale, I was up very early and walking around the house. I slept in the woodshed and could run outdoors whenever I liked. The woodshed was at the back of the house, and near it was the tool shed. Then there was a carriage house and a plank walk leading to the barnyard. I ran up this walk and looked into the first building I came to. It was the horse stable. A door stood open, and the morning sun was glancing in. There were several horses there, some with their heads toward me and some with their tails. I saw that instead of being tied up, they were in box stalls and could stand any way they liked. There was a man moving about at the other end of the stable, and long before he saw me, I knew it was Mr. Wood. What a nice, clean stable he had. There was always a foul smell coming out of Jenkins' stable but here the air seemed as pure inside as out. There were many little gratings in the wall to let in the fresh air, and they were so placed that the draughts would not blow on the horses. Mr. Wood was going from one horse to another, giving them hay and talking to them in a cheerful voice. At last he spied me and cried out, "'The top of the morning to you, Joe. You are up early. Don't come too near the horses, good dog,' as I walked in beside him. "'They might think you are another Bruno and give you a sly bite or kick.' I should have shot him long ago. It's hard to make a good dog suffer for a bad one, but that's the way of the world. Well, old fellow, what do you think of my horse stable? Pretty fair, isn't it? Mr. Wood went on talking to me, as he fed and groomed his horses, till I soon found that his chief pride was in them. I like to have human beings talk to me. Mr. Morris often reads his sermons to me, and Miss Laura tells me secrets that I don't think she would tell to anyone else. I watched Mr. Wood carefully while he groomed a huge gray cart horse that he called Dutchman. He took a brush in his right hand and a curry comb in his left, and he curried and brushed every part of the horse's skin and afterward wiped him with a cloth. A good grooming is equal to two quarts of oats, Joe, he said. Then he stooped down and examined the horse's hooves. Your shoes are too heavy, Dutchman, he said. But that big-headed blacksmith thinks he knows more about horses than I do. "'Don't cut the sole or the frog,' I say to him. "'Don't pare the hoof too much and don't rasp it. "'And fit your shoe to the foot and not the foot to the shoe.' "'And he looks as if he wanted to say, "'Mind your own business. "'We'll not go to him again. "'Tis hard to teach an old dog new tricks.' 
I got you to work for me, not to wear out your strength in lifting about his weighty shoes. And Mr. Wood stopped talking for a few minutes and whistled a tune. And then he began again. I've made a study of horses, Joe. Over 40 years I've studied them. And it's my opinion that the average horse knows more than the average man that drives him. When I think about the stupid fools that are goading patient horses about, beating them and misunderstanding them, and thinking they are only clods of earth with a little life in them, I'd like to take their horses out of the shafts and harness the men in, and I'd trot them off at a pace and slash them and jerk them, till I guess they'd come out with a little less patience than the animal does. Look at this Dutchman. See the size of him? You'd think he'd have had any more nerves than a bit of granite. Yet he's got skin as sensitive as a girl's. See how he quivers if I run the curry comb too harshly over him? The idiot I got him from didn't know what was the matter with him. He'd bought him for a reliable horse, and there he was, kicking and stamping whenever the boy went near him. Your boy's got too heavy a hand, Deacon Jones, I said, when he described the horse's actions to me. You may depend upon it. A four-legged creature, unlike a two-legged one, has a reason for everything he does. "'But he's only a draught horse,' said Deacon Jones. "'Draught horse or no draught horse,' said I. "'You're describing a horse with a tender skin to me, "'and I don't care if he's as big as an elephant.' "'Well,' the old man grumbled and said he didn't want any thoroughbred heirs in his stable. "'So I bought you, didn't I, Dutchman?' "'And Mr. Wood stroked him kindly and went to the next stall. "'In each stall was a small tank with a sliding cover.' And I soon found out afterward that these covers were put on when a horse came in too heated to have a drink. At any other time, he could drink all he liked. Mr. Wood believed in having plenty of pure water for all his animals. Even I had a little bowl of water in the woodshed, though I could have easily run up to the barnyard when I wanted a drink. As soon as I came, Mrs. Wood asked Adele to keep it there for me. And when I looked up gratefully at her, she said... Every animal should have its own feeding place and its own sleeping place, Joe. That is only fair. The next horses Mr. Wood groomed were his black ones, Cleve and Pacer. Pacer had something wrong with his mouth, and Mr. Woods turned back his lips and examined it carefully. This he was able to do, for there were large windows in the stable, and it was as light as the house. No dark corners here, eh, Joe? said Mr. Wood, as he came out of the stall and passed me to get a bottle from the shelf. When this stable was built, I said, no dirt holes for careless men here. I want the sun to shine in the corners, and I don't want my horses to smell bad smells, for they hate them. And I don't want them starting when they go into the light of day, just because they've been kept in a black hole of a stable, and I've never had a sick horse yet. He poured something from the bottle into a saucer and went back to Pacer with it. I followed him and stood outside. Mr. Wood seemed to be washing a sore in the horse's mouth. "'Pacer winced a little, and Mr. Wood said, "'Steady, steady, my butte. "'Twill soon be over.' "'The horse fixed his intelligent eyes on his master "'and looked as if he knew he was trying to do him good. "'Just look at these lips, Joe,' said Mr. Wood. "'Delicate and fine like our own, "'yet there are brutes that will jerk them "'as if they were made of iron. "'I wish the Lord would give horses voices for just one week. "'I tell you, they'd scare some of us. "'Now, Pacer, that's over.' I'm not going to dose you much, for I don't believe in it. If a horse has a serious trouble, get a good horse doctor, say I. If it's a simple thing, try a simple remedy. There's many a good horse drugged and dosed to death. Well, scamp, my beauty, how are you this morning? 
In the next stall to Pacer was a small jet black mare with a lean head, slender legs, and a curious restless manner. She was a regular greyhound of a horse, no spare flesh, yet wiry and able to do a great deal of work. She was a wicked-looking little thing, so I thought I had better keep a safe distance from her heels. Mr. Wood petted her a great deal, and I saw that she was his favorite. Scamp, he exclaimed, when she pretended to bite him. You know if you bite me, I'll bite back again. I think I've conquered you, he said proudly, as he stroked her glossy neck. But what a dance you led me. Do you remember how I bought you for a mere song, because you had a bad habit of turning around like a flash in front of anything that frightened you, and bolting off the other way? And how did I cure you, my beauty? Beat you and make you stubborn? Not I. I let you go round and round. I turned you and twisted you, the oftener the better for me, till I got it into your pretty head that turning and twisting was addling your brains, and you'd better let me be master. You've minded me from that day, haven't you? Horse or man or dog aren't much good till they learn to obey, and I've thrown you down, and I'll do it again if you bite me, so take care. Scamp tossed her pretty head and took little pieces of Mr. Woods's shirt sleeve in her mouth, keeping her cutting brown eye on him as if to see how far she could go. But she did not bite him. I think she loved him, for when he left, she whinnied shrilly, and he had to go back and stroke and caress her. After that, I often used to watch her as she went about the farm. She always seemed to be tugging and striving at her load, and trying to step out fast and do a great deal of work. Mr. Wood was usually driving her. The men didn't like her and couldn't manage her. She had not been properly broken in. After Mr. Wood had finished his work, he went and stood in the doorway. There were six horses altogether. Dutchman, Cleave, Pacer, Scamp, a bay mare called Ruby, and a young horse belonging to Mr. Harry, whose name was Fleetfoot. "'What do you think of them all?' said Mr. Wood, looking down at me. "'A pretty fine-looking lot of horses, aren't they? "'Not a thoroughbred there, but worth as much to me as if each had a pedigree as long as this plank wall.' There's a lot of humbug about this pedigree business in horses. Mine have their manes and tails anyway, and the proper use of their eyes, which is more liberty than some thoroughbreds get. I'd like to see the man who would persuade me to put on blinders or check reins or any other instruments of torture on my horses. Don't the simpletons know that the blinders are the cause of, well, I wouldn't like to say how many of our accidents, Joe, for fear you'd think me extravagant. And the check rein drags a horse's head up out of its fine natural curve and presses sinews, bones, and joints together till the horse is well-nigh mad. Ah, Joe, this is a cruel world for man or beast. You're a standing token of that with your missing ears and tail. And now I have to go and be cruel and shoot that dog. He must be disposed of before anyone else is astir. How I hate to take life. I ran away because I could not help feeling sorry for Bruno. Miss Laura's room was on one side of the house and in the second story. There was a little balcony outside it, and when I got near I saw that she was standing on it, wrapped in a shawl. Her hair was streaming over her shoulders, and she was looking down into the garden, where there were a great many white and yellow flowers in bloom. I barked, and she looked at me. Dear old Joe, I will get dressed and come down. She hurried into her room, and I lay in the veranda till I heard her step. Then I jumped up. She unlocked the front door, and we went for a walk down the lane to the road till we heard the breakfast bell. Then we ran back to the house, and Miss Laura had such an appetite for her breakfast that her aunt said the country had done her good already. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Visit our website at www.enchantedlibrary.net to see our past books or to connect with us on Facebook. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash enchantedlibrary. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends, happy reading.